I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Monday, June 13th, 2011. Day after Pentecost Sunday. And even though my church recognized Pentecost Sunday, we were not jumping over the pews, barking like dogs, engaging in ecstatic, nonsensical, doesn't-mean-anything speech. No. Not at all. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. As a result, we have to do the comparative work, and uh, we analyze religious news. Uh, we take a look at some interesting crackpots out there, and we try to have a little bit of fun along the way. But all of this is a, is designed to help teach you biblical discernment, to challenge you to get into the biblical text and not just take people's word for it when they're telling you God wants you to do this or God expects that or anything of that nature. Instead, you've got a job to do, Christian, and your job is to be a Berean. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the word of God. Test everything and hold to that which is true. And even I get tested. Even what I say, the Bible says, You've got to open up your Bible and test to make sure that I'm right, rightly handling God's word as I teach you. So, okay, so it's the the weekend's over. Pentecost was yesterday, and uh, and and let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Um, we have Harold Camping news um, that uh, we've got to cover, and it's it's fascinating news. In fact, when I told my wife about it. Uh, she reminded me that it, uh, of uh, of when the ELCA up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, when they were holding their convention and they were deciding to, uh, to uh, ordain uh, partnered um, uh, homosexuals, uh, that uh, there was a little mini tornado that came through town and blew the cross. I mean, literally flipped the cross off the top of the church right across the street from where this happened. And if you know the news about Harold Camping, is this one of those things like, 
Okay, this is interesting. We're gonna. <laughs> so I, I'm not gonna divulge what has happened yet. If you know the news, just you know, bear with me. We're gonna take a look at uh, Harold Camping. Um, I've got um, I've got news regarding Michael Dowd. Uh, the folks over at the Uncommon Descent blog um, ha- are asking a question: Can the God of Evolution revive liberal churches? And uh, Michael Dowd and, his, and actually his wife has a has a concept that she wants to pass along uh, evolutionary revivals as a means of reviving flagging attendance over at uh, mainline liberal churches that uh, continue to you know well their attendance goes down and down and down you know a sure way to kill uh, a uh, church is to have it go liberal. Anyway, uh, despite the fact that the uh, emergent church came and you know kind of came and did its thing, it was the hip avant-garde thing. But as it turned out, all of that evasiveness that they were engaging in was just a, a in order to not have to admit that they're just basically a revival of mainline liberalism rather than in mo- modernist terms. They're now postmodern liberals, but it's the same idea. So we'll take a look at uh, that. Um, let's see here. Um, I, I yeah I'm I I've got audio from a video that I want to review that was uh, put out by the Gospel Coalition today and it asks an important question and the name of it is quantity of disciples or quality of discipleship and uh, what's really interesting about this video is, is it's got James McDonald of the Elephant in the Room fame it's got Mark uh, uh, Dr Mark Dever of uh, Capitol Hill Baptist Church fame, and uh, a man whom I have a deep uh, deep respect for in his gospel preaching, as well as Matt Chandler, another man that I have I have a lot of respect for in uh, in his passion for preaching the gospel in his church and rightly handling God's word. And so they're they're tackling the question: quantity of disciples or quality of discipleship. We'll listen in, and even though I wasn't invited uh, to participate in the video, I will chime in and give my two cents because I reserve the right to uh, give my opinion and to opine while doing this program. And uh, and then uh, and then I've got a news story from the uh, Christian Post. Uh, that basically says Southern Baptist pastors told to preach Christ and not themselves. Sounds like a great headline. This is a story worth passing along. And then in hour number two, we've got two good sermons that we're going to be reviewing today. Uh, Both of them preached by Lutheran pastors. Both of them preached on the Pentecost text for uh, a Pentecost Sunday, Acts chapter 2, and both of them uh, rightly handling God's word and dealing with the gift of the gift of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and uh, giving us a sound sober historical uh, the way the church has always understood these biblical texts contrary to the new and innovative way of looking at things given to us by the Pentecostals and the Azusa Street Revival those in the vineyard and uh, the AOG and other places so it's definitely uh, you, da- you you don't want to miss both of these good sermons i think that they provide a fantastic counterbalance to the uh, crazy stuff that's going on uh in the churches today so with that, uh, you know, I don't have much by way of monologue today. I, I feel like I just got to get 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 to business. Got to get things going. Got to get 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 the program rolling. And and so uh, with that, uh, since we have Harold Camping news, I, I think it's important that we uh, play our Harold Camping uh, update music.
Enough of the gratuitous violence with this uh, music. Sorry about that, folks. I, <clears throat> I I don't know what comes over me, but the, I, I I feel it necessary that when I play that song now, um, that I I fill in the the death and destruction that the song is referring to with this weird kind of you know ballad type. Anyway, you get what I'm saying. Um, Harold Camping, um, uh, the man who well failed to predict. <clears throat> The rapture on uh, May 21st of this year. Um, we've re- we've covered that story pretty much. Uh, well, beat it to death. And you know what's really sad about the folks, uh, the campingites. Some of them are so sad. But you know, you, you need if you want to cheer them up. One of the things you can tell them say, "Hey, st- stop! It's it's not like it's the end of the world or anything." But um, yeah. Anyway, um, in a in a bizarre bizarre story. Um, uh, I'll read the Christian Post version of it, although uh, the story originally broke on the uh, San Jose Mercury News. Uh, the Christian Post writes about it, though. Uh, headline reads, Harold Camping doing well after stroke, says wife. Now, it wasn't a serious stroke, but pay close attention. After I told the story to my wife, her response was, man, it, it, it reminded her of... Um, the uh, little mini tornado that blew through Minneapolis while the ELCA was voting uh, to ordain partnered homosexuals, um, and it, you know, and it, it just ruffed, ruffled things up, and then you know, tossed the cross off, you know, the 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 church across the street from where they were voting. It, it, this I, this kind of has that same feel to it, but. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, Catherine Fawn writes, she says, a doomsday preacher, Harold Camping, is doing very well days after he was admitted to a hospital for a stroke, his wife said Sunday evening. Uh, When the Christian Post visited Camping's home in Alameda, California, Sunday, a woman claiming to be Camping's wife, Shirley, answered the door but never revealed her face. Asked about Camping's condition, the presumed Mrs. Camping reported to the Christian Post, well, he's doing very well. Not a serious stroke at all. Not serious. Mrs. Camping didn't reveal which hospital her husband was admitted to, but asked if he was still in the hospital. She responded, the hospital doesn't allow people in, so I can't tell you, all right? She also said she had no idea when Camping would be released from the hospital, commenting that's too soon. The 89-year-old Camping was admitted to a hospital Thursday night after he suffered a stroke. The Oakland Tribune reported the neighbors of Camping, who had spoken to Shirley, told the Tribune Friday that the radio preacher was doing okay and that the stroke seemed to only affect his speech, which appeared now to be slurred. So he didn't have a a catastrophic uh, stroke. He had a little mini-stroke, and the only thing impacted was Harold Camping's speech. So Harold Camping has been effectively removed from the airwaves for the meantime in in that uh, the stroke has rendered him incapable of actually doing his radio program and continuing to spew his false Bible teaching and false biblical hermeneutic and false prophecies and false predictions regarding the end of the world. It makes you wonder how long his recovery process will be. But in the short term, Harold Camping has been silenced. 
So what do you think? Um, is this God's discipline of Harold Camping? Was it just a coincidence? Um, you know, is this similar to uh, what we saw happen a couple of years ago in Minneapolis, Minnesota, when a little mini tornado uh, blew through Minneapolis while the ELCA was voting to ordain uh, partnered, unrepentant homosexuals, uh, practicing homosexuals, uh, while they were voting on that, a little mini tornado literally blew right through town and went down the street where the convention center there is in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And uh, the ELCA congregation that's right across the street from the um, from the uh, the convention center there, uh, the, the, the steeple sustained damage. The cross literally was not totally torn off, but mostly torn off and ended up upside down and dangling from the steeple there after the little tornado blew through. Is Was this an act of God? Was this God disciplining and silencing Harold Camping? I, I'd like to get your feedback on it. You know, it's tough to interpret those types of things, but I again, it kind of has that same feel to it. I mean, Harold Camping is okay, except for the fact that he can't speak anymore. Yeah, interesting, 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 interesting. Okay, moving along. She loves a monkey's uncle, yeah, yeah. She loves a monkey's uncle, ho, ho. She loves a monkey's uncle. And the monkey's uncle, they for me. Well, I don't care what the whole world thinks. She loves the monkey's uncle. Call us a couple of missing links. She loves the monkey's uncle. Love all his monkey shines. Every day is Valentine's. I love the monkey's uncle and the monkey's uncle, they for me. They for me. All right, yeah, that, that can mean that only one thing. We've got a, a, an evolutionary Christianity update, so to speak. Uh, I use this for Biologos and for Michael Dowd and all of those folks that are trying, that are out there trying to uh, marry Christian doctrine to uh, Darwinian evolution. And uh, you know, <laughs> I did. I've gotten several very upset emails uh, regarding uh, the uh, story that I read last week. Uh, from the Huffington Post, from Dr. Carl Guyberson, who basically said, you "Just, just let the you know, the consensus of the scientists is agreed on this. Just listen to them, and there's no reason that you should be concerned. You need to just accept what these people are saying. Period." Which is not a compelling argument at all. I mean, it, in fact, that's uh, it, that's an illog that's a logical fallacy. It's a faulty appeal to authority uh, because you know, as you remember in the piece that uh, the, the the segment that we did. I appealed to uh, equally scientific authorities who were basically challenging Darwinian evolution. But anyway, <clears throat> Michael Dowd, um, he and his wife, um, they, they've, um, well, they're up to something, and they've um, uh, basically caught the notice, the attention of the folks who at the Uncommon Descent blog, that you can find it at uncommondescent.com. Un commondescent.com which is you know, I love the guys that and the work that they do there. Anyway, um the headline reads can evolution's god revive liberal churches and if we talk about revive think of revivals. 
of the uh, the uh, folks at Uncommon Descent write. They say, Michael Dowd of Thank God for Evolution fame has had a vision, brethren, of how to revive liberal churches by holding emotionally charged evolution revivals. <sighs> oh, man. Could you imagine? Everyone say Darwin, Darwin. Everyone say evolution, evolution. Now raise your hands and praise God for Darwin. Oh, thank you, Lord Jesus, for Darwin. Yeah, serious? I mean, no. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> uh, anyway, we'll let Michael Dowd tell what's going on here. Here's what Michael Dowd writes. He says, it all began when a friend alerted us to an interview with Harvard's esteemed biologist and Pulitzer Prize-winning author Edward O. Wilson. Wilson's book, The Creation, had just been released. And here's an excerpt from an interview that appeared in the Washington Post. Quote, It's hard to picture, if you know him, only by his scientific reputation, but E.O. Wilson confesses it freely. He loves watching preachers on television. Wilson is an internationally renowned biologist who has based his extraordinary productive five-decade career on that great bastion of secular humanism, Harvard University. At 77, his work and his, inter, uh, and his worldview are so thoroughly entwined with Darwinian theory that they're impossible to imagine without it. His reverence is is for the wondrous creatures and intricate interconnections of the natural world, not for any supreme being. So what's he doing tuning in to those evangelical sermons from the megachurches? Quote, I listen to them the way an Italian listens to opera, Wilson confesses with a lopsided grin. I may be thinking of the text as fiction, but I can't resist the old-time rhythm and the music and the superlative performances. Isn't it weird that, like, one of the major <laughs> uh, evolutionary scientists at Harvard, 77 years old, uh, calls the mega church services performances? Hmm. I think he might uh, be on to something there. Anyway, Dowd continues, when Connie, this is Dowd's wife, also an atheist, her name is Connie Barlow, read this interview in the Washington Post, it all came together for her. Six months earlier, she and I, out of curiosity, had attended a Wednesday evening service at one of America's largest megachurches, Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas. That would be <laughs> the home of um, Joel Osteen. Yeah, that, they do put on a good performance there at Lakewood. I've, I mean, it's uplifting stuff for sure. It ain't biblical doctrine. It ain't solid. It ain't. It, it's in fact, he, um, uh, Joel Osteen wouldn't know how to properly handle God's God's word if his life actually physically depended upon it. But you know, hey, you know, it's a good performance. So anyway, coming back to the story. So Connie, uh, this is uh, Michael Dowd's wife. He and his wife attended uh, Lakewood, and even at this midweek service, some 8,000 people had gathered to sing and sway and pray together. Many were saved that night, including Connie. Of course, she didn't follow through, but she did decide to take on this hobby. She watched a lot of mega church videos. It turned out that a number of liberal church leaders had been watching them too. And given that liberal churches are nearing extinction, Connie has been promoting the idea of evolutionary revivals whenever 
and wherever she gets the opportunity. Dowd adds, praise God for the possibility of evolutionary revival services. Man, I wish I was making that up. Yeah, it makes me wonder if I should do another Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. But this time, you know, it, you know, it, it 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 would be our projection of this concept. You know, you know, you know, somebody said, "Praise Jesus for Darwin." Everyone, raise your hand and kiss your monkey's uncle. Yeah, praise the Lord for evolution. Oh, we just love that missing link. Can't find it, but man, we praise God for the missing, missing link. Yes, that's right. <clears throat> Evolutionary revival services coming to a mainline liberal or emergent church near you. I mean, with all of the trappings of the modern word faith mega churches and you know w- w- along with that old time religion I mean, it makes you wonder if you know Doug Paget and uh, Tony Jones will will you know go out and you know make the rounds at the at the liberal churches at the emergent uh, cohorts promoting a, a revival a revival service designed to revive people into uh, into praising god for darwinian evolution could happen. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Because only good theology leads people to heaven. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. It's Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Good morning. Good morning, sir. Can I help you? Yes. Do you have a copy of 30 Days in the Desert to Learn Your Purpose and to Cast the Vision to the Ignorant Masses by S. Furtick QWZ? Uh, well, I don't know the book, sir. Uh, never mind, never mind. How about 101 Ways to Build a Mega Church and Make Big Bucks? I... Well, some American gentleman whose name eludes me at the moment. I believe his last name rhymes with Shin. Uh, no, well, we haven't gotten in stock, sir. <sighs> oh, well, not to worry, not to worry. Can you help me with the screw tape letters? Ah, yes. C.S. Lewis. No. I beg your pardon? No, Harold Wapcat. I think you'll find C.S. Lewis wrote the screw tape letters. Sir. No, no, Lewis wrote the screw tape letters with one C. This is the screw tape letters with two C's by Harold Wapcat. The screw tape letters with two C's. Yes, I should have said that. Yes, well, in that case, we don't have it. Hmm, funny, you've got a lot of books here. Yes, we do, but we don't have the screw tape letters with two C's by Harold Wapcat. Hmm, pity, it's more thorough than Lewis's. 
more thorough? Yes, I, I wonder if it might be worth looking through all of your screw tape letters. No, sir, all of our screw tape letters have one C. Are you sh- quite sure? Quite. Mm. Not worth just looking. Definitely not. <sighs> all right, how about the great divorce? Yes, well, we have that. That's G R A T E, divorce, but also by Harold Wapcat. Yes, well, in that case, we don't have it. We don't have anything by Harold Wapcat. He actually, he's not very popular. Not the problem of pain. That's P-R-O-A-B-L-U-M. No. Mm, the Chronicles of Narnia with a K. No. How about Out of the Violent Planet? Definitely not. <sighs> Sorry to trouble you. Not at all. Good morning. Good morning. Oh! Yes. I-, I wonder if you might have a copy of Perilous Landra. No, as I said before, we're right out of Harold Wapcat. No, not Harold Wapcat. C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis. Yes! You mean Paralandra? No, Perilous Landra by C.S. Lewis. That's Lewis with two S's, the well-known feminist lesbian theologian. No, well, we don't have Perilous Landra by C.S. Lewis with two S's, the well-known feminist lesbian theologian. And perhaps to save time, I should add that we don't have Dandy Landra by C.S. Lewis or the penultimate battle by Clive Staples' Chewbacca or even Out of the Silent but Deadly Planet by B.S. Lewis with four eyes and a silent Q. What a pity. That's my favorite. Why don't you try Zondervan? I did. They sent me here. Did they? I, I wonder. Oh, do go on, please. Yes, I I wonder if you might have the amazing adventures of Pastor Perry Noble and his intrepid spaniel Stig amongst the giant purpose-driven pygmies of Beckles. Volume 8. No, don't have that. Funny. Got a lot of books here. Well, I mustn't keep you standing here, thank you. Oh, well, do you have... No, no, we haven't. No, we haven't. But, 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 Sorry, but, but, it's 1 o'clock. We're closing for lunch. I, I saw it. I saw it. What? What? I, I saw it over there. Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Meyer. Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Meyer. Yes. B-O-D-I-E-S. Yes. M-A-Y-E-R. Yes. Yes, well, we do have that, as a matter of fact. The expurgated version. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't quite catch that. The expurgated The version. expurgated version of Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Mayer? The one without the Lutherans. The, the one without the Lutherans? They've all got the Lutherans. It's a standard religious body. The Lutherans are in all the books. Well, I don't like them. They baptize infants. All right, I'll remove it. Any other religious bodies you don't like? I don't like the Presbyterians. The Presbyterians, right. Presbyterians. There you are. Any others you don't like? Any others? The Methodists. The Methodists, the Methodists, the Methodists, the Methodists. Oh, yeah, they are. There you are. No Lutherans, no Presbyterians, no Methodists. There's your book. I can't buy that. It's torn. <laughs> I-, I wonder if you have... Um... No, go on. Ask me anything. We've got lots of book here. You know, it's a bookshop. How about Osteen brushes his teeth? No, no, we don't have that one. Funny. Uh, the Gospel According to Rob Bell. No, no, no. Try me again. Uh, I know. Uh, Martin Kenneth's The Two Natures in Christ. No, no, no. What, what, what? what? Yeah, Martin Kenneth's The Two Natures in Christ. Martin Kenneth's Two Natures Yes! We got it! I see it somewhere! Yes! I found it! It's here! Got it! Yes! Here we are! Martin Kempton's Two Natures in Christ! There's your book! Now buy it! I don't have enough money. I'll take a deposit! I, I don't have any money! I'll take a check! I, I don't have a checkbook! I got a blank one! I, I don't have a bank account! Right! I'll buy it for you! There we are! There's change! There's some money for a taxi on the wait, way home! There's wait! Your wait! 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 What? 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 I can't read! You can't! Read. Right? Sit down. Sit down. Sit, sit. Are you sitting comfortably? Right. Chapter 1. Because the person of the incarnate Christ is made up of two natures, the divine and the human, united into one hypostasis, there follows from this a communion of attributes.
Chris Roseboro here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says, Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com, join our crew today, and thank you for your support. Right, we're back. Warning, I don't care how the how the how it goes, the Holy Spirit will not be participating in any evolutionary revival services. In fact, it will be a different spirit, not the Holy Spirit, but it'll be some kind of spirit, but it won't be the Holy Spirit. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio, and we truly depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And uh, currently, we're still on our um, on our quest to uh, add 350 new members of our crew. We have, well, about 180 left to go. And uh, and the good news is this: uh, we we've got we've definitely have got the book out. So if you join our crew, I will be sending you the email uh, so that you can download this month's uh, perk for our uh, subscribers, uh, for our crew members. And that's uh, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. I truly, truly enjoyed uh, working on uh, on that and making it uh, available to our uh, subscribers. So in fact, th- th- that's the only way that you can get it. If you uh, if you're not a member of our crew. Yeah, this is not one that you can you know, you can purchase alternatively. So that's the only way you can get it is by joining a crew. So visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. We still need about 180 folks to join our crew, and uh, I'll send you out the link. Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, for uh, all of your support and uh, helping us to uh, pay our bills uh, so that we can keep bringing this uh, radio outreach to you and to the world. Okay, moving along here. um, I'm going to read this news story first. From the Christian Post, headline reads, Southern Baptist pastors told to preach Christ and not themselves. (laughs) 
All I can say is amen. I don't, that's all I can say is amen. Right, exactly. Yeah, in fact, there's a biblical text that talks about that, that you know, we don't preach ourselves, but Christ and him crucified. Anyway, uh, this was written by uh, Audrey Barrick of the uh, Christian Post. It, it reads, Southern Baptist pastors were given a simple yet poignant message Sunday uh, to preach Christ and not themselves, citing what uh, were likely familiar words from the late A.T. Robertson, Bob Pittman reminded them that preaching of oneself was surely as poor and disgusting a topic as a preacher can find. <laughs> yes, amen. <clears throat> Sorry, Dean of the Adrian Rogers Center for Biblical Preaching at the Mid-America Baptist Theological Seminary in Memphis, Tennessee, Pittman directed his message to hundreds of pastors gathered in Phoenix, Arizona for a two-day conference held just ahead of the Southern Baptist Convention's annual meeting. He pointed out that many Southern Baptists try to make church about themselves, though they might not admit it. Quote, I'm going to have it my way, and this church can't survive without me, are some of the lamentable attitudes of some Southern Baptist Convention pastors, he noted, quote, some pastors see themselves as CEOs of an organization, and they're not. There's, yeah, the Bible does not know of the office of this vision-casting, innovative, innovative CEO pastor. That is a completely foreign, foreign concept. In fact, it's incompatible with the biblical office of the holy ministry, where the pastor is a shepherd. In fact, that's what the word pastor means. And the job of the pastor is to feed God's sheep and disciple people. Anyway, bringing them back to Scripture, Pittman reminded church ministers why it is that they are called to preach Christ and not themselves. Quote, we're not the chief shepherd. We're the under-shepherds. The longtime evangelists emphasize God is not interested in any sandcastles that we might build. God is not interested in any personal agendas that we may push. God is not impressed as we climb the ladder in the denomination. The only thing that really impresses God is that we live for Jesus' sake. Now, that's kind of a Baptist way of putting it. Go back to preaching Christ. It's not important that they know our name, but it's important that they know his name. Pittman highlighted, amen. He called pastors to true humility where one comes into grips with their nothingness and Christ's everythingness. Preach myself? I cannot preach myself because I did not speak this world into creation, but I know someone who did. I was not conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, but I know someone who was. I have not lived a life without sin, but I know someone who did. I was never crucified on the cross for the sins of the world and raised again on the third day, but I know someone who was, he exclaimed. Pittman's message was received enthusiastically from conference attendees, though a basic and obvious call to preach Jesus, the message came off as refreshing and straightforward, especially at a time when pastors are worried that the gospel message is becoming increasingly muddied. Yes, it is. The pastor's mandate, Pittman outlined, is to preach. We must preach because of the presence of false prophets and teachers, he said. False prophets use trickery and deception to draw men into their way of thinking. They twist the scriptures with the desire to ensnare people so that they might be corrupted. The presence of false prophets isn't the only reason pastors must preach. We preach because of the mercy of God, he added. Just as they were once lost but shown the mercy of God, pastors must extend that same message of grace 
and mercy to the rest of the world. There are pimps and prostitutes and homosexuals and murderers and thieves and rapists and child molesters, and all of them need to know about the mercy of God, he underscored. Now, I would just add to that, and there's a whole bunch of business people and moms and students that need to hear that same message, too. We preach because... People without Christ really are lost, he added. They may be nice people, but they're lost. Pittman is among a host of well-known and lesser-known speakers at the 2011 Pastors Conference for the SBC Pastors. Other speakers included John Piper, Louis Giglio, Rick Warren. (coughs) Sorry. (coughs) I'm I'm so happy that that, uh, Pittman um, preached that message with uh, Rick Warren as one of the other guys on the docket. Anyway, Johnny Hunt and Bartholomew Orr, among others, organizers took up an offering, 100% of which will go toward taking the gospel to the unreached people groups and hosting pastor training conferences on three different continents where the believers have no access to training. Great piece, and I'm glad to hear that um, one of the guys on the docket there at that preaching conference told people to preach Christ, to which all I can say is amen, amen, and amen. All right, this next segment uh, for the program here, uh, the folks over at the Gospel Coalition um, have put together a video. Funny thing is it's in black and white, <laughs> so it kind of has this retro feel to it. Anyway, uh, it, it, it includes um, uh, James McDonald, uh, Dr. Mark Dever, as well as um, Matt Chandler, and the and the question that's on the the table is quantity of disciples or quality of discipleship. Let's listen into what they say regarding this. And of course, I'll pause and opine as needed. Here we go. Well, we're so back, James. We we're meet again. again. <laughs> we're actually wanting to discuss today uh, with our good friends a conversation that goes on in a lot of cities all the time. It's the conversation between pastors. They all uh, love the Word of God. They all believe the gospel, but some are focused on reaching, reaching, reaching people, and some are focused on deeper, deeper, deeper discipleship. But often it's not as simple as it seems. And mm. sometimes we log gr- grenades over the wall at those who are doing it differently. But I think we can uh, reason together about these priorities. And uh, Mark, how does that work at your church? Well, James, I wanted to ask you: Haven't you found that tension in your own ministry? Because I know you like to share the gospel, but one of the things young guys have to struggle with, I think, in becoming pastors is they're pulled back from the time they would have if they were in school or in a secular job from doing personal evangelism. They're pulled back into more discipling. Yeah. Yeah? Okay, now I want to point something out here. This is a discussion taking place between pastors. McDonald, Dever, and Chandler are all pastors. The purpose of the pastoral ministry is the building up of the body of Christ. That is its that is the primary purpose. It is the disciple-making mechanism, the disciple-making office, the caretaking office within the body of Christ. Now, I I would go to the passages in the in 1 uh, Corinthians that talk about the different gifts of the Holy Spirit, okay. Let, 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 let me, because this isn't brought up in this context, but I, I want to bring this up. 
First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is a curse, and no one can say Jesus is Lord, that is, Jesus is God. That's what Lord really means there, except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by one of the Spirit, to another working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between the Spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All of these empowered by the one same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Now, I'm going to point something out here. Okay? Pastors really need to be those who have uh, one form of uh, a form of the gift of prophecy, and 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 they actually hold a prophetic office within the church. And so the the God, the Holy Spirit, gives them uh, the ability to prophesy. And what I mean by that is not tell the future, but foretell what God's word says, to give a living voice to the word of God and the message that the Holy Spirit intended that the word convey when it preached and proclaimed. That is a prophetic teaching office. Now, there are also those who have a gift of evangelism. Evangelism is a different gift, so to speak, or a different gifting than a pastoral office. Okay, so in other words, the, if, if the the office of the pastor has a specific function, plain and simple, it's the building up of the body of Christ. That is its primary goal. Now, does that does that mean that uh, that pastors can't engage in evangelism? No, it doesn't mean that at all. What it does mean is is that uh since that is the, the, the they have they have duties that go along with the pastoral office, those duties have to have to do with tending to God's sheep. Evangelists are those who strike out who are sent. Okay, now I would point to a couple of passages uh, that that deal with evangelism, and I would point to, first and foremost, the way Jesus explained evangelism is to be done. You take two guys, you commission them, and you send them. You send them out. You don't—evangelism isn't done— by making the church appealing to non-believers, that actually abdicates the, the the biblical responsibility of the pastoral office. Instead, those who have been commissioned, those who have uh, the gift of evangelism, they are sent out. And you can even say that the church, when the church dismisses every Sunday, it, let's say if there's a hundred and fifty uh, 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 hundred and fifty Christians who meet together. That form up a particular congregation of God of God's church. That when those hundred and fifty disperse, you can say that there's a hundred and fifty evangelists that are going out. Now that does you, you get what I'm saying here? You go out and you proclaim. You go out and you you cast the net. And this is seen in the way Jesus taught the disciples how to do evangelism to send them out into towns two by two to proclaim repentance and the good news. And this then is the exact model that is in play in the book of Acts. When the church is launched, 
they go out to proclaim the uh, to proclaim the gospel, and God the Holy Spirit gives faith and repentance to those who hear the word. And they're then brought into the church, and the pastor's job is to care for them, to feed them, and disciple them, and to bring them up into the faith. This is the way the church has been from the beginning. This is what has been uh, documented for us in God's holy word. And the seeker-driven guys are, are basically trying to abdicate their biblical responsibilities as pastors by basically saying, well, I'm an evangelist, and we've got to go and seek and save the lost. That doesn't, you know, if you want to go and seek and save the lost, by all means, do so. But don't do so at the expense of the of the flock of God, of the sheep of God. You can't do that. You, pastor, have a job to do. You have a biblical responsibility. And just saying that you're an evangelist doesn't get you out of the job. You know what I mean? Anyway, I wanted to chime in here because... You'll see what I'm saying, but here they're talking about the tension between quantity versus quality. I think this is kind of a false tension. The reason it's a false tension is is because a pastor who's doing his job is going to be equipping disciples who are capable of going out and proclaiming the gospel, and as a result of it, God's going to bring them to repentance and the forgiveness of their sins, and then they're brought in, dragged in to the church. You know, think of the of the net fishing analogy. But anyway, let's continue. Well, I think the tension that I have felt is, is my gifts really lean more toward uh, a prophetic kinds of gifts, teaching gifts. And so I think my disposition is to take people deeper, and yet I believe that the gospel calls me to go further and mm. commands me to go out. So we've tried uh, to build a church, and we have signs all around our church that say not a quantity of disciples, but a quality of discipleship. And mm. our ministry has been about if you take care of the uh, quality, God will take care of the mm. quantity. We haven't done that perfectly, but that's the way that we've tried to solve the tension. Mm. And uh, God's seen and I And uh, I would basically say, uh, James, that that's the way the church has done it from the beginning. Quality of discipleship leads to good evangelism that then grows the church. I'm absolutely convinced that 150 disciples of Jesus Christ who are well-versed, well-grounded in God's Word, are are far more effective at evangelism than a a hipster pastor with a rock and roll concert for a church service. To be using it. How's it going with you, Matt? Well, I'm, I, I mean, just to kind of continue to say some of the same things, I, I think there always is that tension for us. Um, the thing that we experienced with, with such quick growth um, was for a season early on, we were, you know, we were kind of a little bit young, a little bit, uh, and by young, I mean foolish, and, and that we were like, you know, we don't want transfer growth. We don't want, you know, we want to see people saved. We don't want people from other churches coming over here. And then about two years in, we were like, okay, dear spirit, please send us someone with a Bible. And because <laughs> we had all these converts and then there was no way to, to manage it. Uh, and so we had strong centralized preaching. Um, but it, it, it just wasn't enough when you had um, this background, this background, this background, this theological framework, this theological framework, no theological framework. And, and so really, um, we started making a, a hard push for um, some of those older men and women uh, in the congregation to really begin to invest deeply um, in, in the new converts. And then we started, uh, we started seeing this real you know, quality versus quantity. I, I found that um, they'll feed off of each other. Uh, and so young converts being tied to mature 
mature believers, does really good things in the life of believers and does really great things in the life of those. So oh. it's life on the right. Exactly. This is not an either or. Basically, a pastor, like a seeker-driven guy, like a Perry Noble or a a Stephen Furtick or those kind of guys who basically, you know, abdicate their responsibility for quality discipleship in the name of evangelism, they're doing exactly what the Apostle Paul warned against in 1 Corinthians. The, the, The eye cannot say to the nose, I don't need you, or the hand cannot say to the foot, I don't need you. This is the body of Christ, and there are different gifts given in the body of Christ for the building up of the church. And evangelists don't get to abdicate their responsibility for quality discipleship making, even if they are an innovative vision casting CEO pastor. Life, not um, for us, not so much mechanical as much as uh, we, we kind of call what we try to do a greenhouse. So so there is there, there's organic at the center of it, but it, you know how to get into the garden. Mm-hmm. So you would say you're quality first, no problem. No, no problem at all, quality first. One very practical way I've tried to marry the two in the way I talk to Christians to encourage them to think about this more and together is to say, look, if you tell me you're a follower of Jesus and you're not helping other people to follow Jesus, I just don't know what you mean. Yeah. You know, that following Jesus may be evangelism, it may be discipling people who are already converted. But somehow the way you see Jesus loved others and gave himself for, for others, that necessarily means that if we're going to be following him, we're going to have to be giving ourselves in love for others yeah. in the various forms that that's going to take. In your church, Mark, would you say quality first or quantity first? I think we know the answer, but let's hear you say it. Well, I think I agree with you that if you take care of the depth, God will take care of the width. You know, so I think what we're supposed to do now, you can always over purify a church. You can always kill the thing by trying too hard on membership and discipline. But that's not where most evangelical churches are. And our church is highly transient. We get a bunch of young people in D.C. They're coming through. We have them for two to three years. They get married. They have their first child. It's too expensive. They go back to Chicago or Dallas. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, speaking of the city that you minister in, you've got uh, the big McLean Bible Church there Mm -hmm. with Law and Solomon. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Mm -hmm. And you've got Prestonwood, certainly, and Jack Graham. We've got Willow Creek with Bill Hybels. Without getting into the nuances of those ministries, we all, I would think it's fair to say, are ministering near a place where someone is leading a church with a major focus on evangelism. Mm -hmm. How do you manage that as you try to focus on uh, uh, quality without being critical of the others or minimizing their evangelistic zeal? How have you tried to manage that in your context? We pray by name for Lon Solomon and McLean Bible Church sometime in the services. Uh, I've written, I don't really, I don't know Lon, uh, but I've written him encouraging notes. When we have people who join our church who came to Christ under his ministry, I'm just thankful. Yeah. for that. Yeah. And so I try to write him notes, encourage him in that. Cool. You know, I know your friends actually with Jack. You, you know yeah. him personally. Yeah. Came to visit you when you were in the hospital. Sure. And, and uh, But do you feel that tension sometimes? A, a ministry that's so strongly evangelistic and yet you're calling and here we are together and people obviously compare. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that I've, I've struggled with it as much as I've tried to as best I can um, keep that door open and, and, and try to communicate back and forth uh, between Jack and I. And I think there have been seasons we've done that better than, yeah. than other seasons. And yeah. um, surely I think when things first started happening at the village and, and there, was, there was some transfer growth, okay. um, I, I think there were some, some probably edges at, at that point. But I, I think the Lord's working and, and doing things. And uh, it, it wasn't easy in Dallas. And, and I think probably the environment in, on the hills is probably a little bit different. I'm not sure about yeah. Chicago, but it, but it wasn't easy for us at the at the village at the onset going. This is the kind of church we want to be, and this is what we want to focus on, and this is where our heart is, and we believe this is what the Bible calls us to. Yeah. Um, to be then, it, there was. A, I guess what I'm trying to say, I could say a lot shorter. Okay, I, I want to pause uh, Matt here for a second. He, here's the deal. 
if the Bible, he's pointing to the scriptures. He's saying, this is what we believe the scriptures are calling us to. The scriptures are universally binding on all Christians. If the Bible is calling Matt Chandler or any particular church to engage in quality discipleship, quality shepherding, then it's not just calling the village church and Matt Chandler to do that. It's calling all congregations, all churches, all body, all many congregations within the greater body of Christ to do that exact same thing. The Bible doesn't call one pastor to do one thing and call another pastor to do another thing. The Bible calls all pastors to do the same thing. There's a very competitive competitive, uh, you know, fighting over sheep, if you will, yeah. Um, type of, yeah, type of idea, and even fighting over converts, which seems crazy because yeah. there's plenty. Yeah. Well, it's not like you're going to run out. Some well, things that happen in your church, you're going to decide to do, and you're doing it deliberately, differently than you know other churches do it. Yeah. Other aspects of your church, it just kind of takes on its own personality, yeah. and it's just kind of the circumstances you're in, and you try to be a faithful steward of that. Well, unfortunately for for us, and w- one of the things that happens when you have a younger church is is and maybe it happens. I mean, you can give me some advice. Maybe it happens as the the body gets older. But our twenty somethings and thirty somethings will see what we're doing as an indictment against what someone else is doing. Right. When it wasn't meant to be that. Yeah. Agreed. So I wouldn't yeah. go and you know forget them. We're going to yeah. do it this way. We'll we're just yeah. doing it this way. Yeah. And our people are like, here's the problem with Prestonwood. Here's yeah. the problem with fellowship. Here's yeah. the that, problem with when that's not uh, your heart at all. No. Really. No. And I, I I mean we're just down the road from Willow, and they do a lot of things differently than we do. Um, but you know when I developed a personal friendship with Bill. And you get to sit across from the person personally. You don't necessarily feel persuaded of their approach. You don't necessarily certainly feel called to do what they're doing. But you're a lot more careful, uh, I think, in what you say. And I think when churches are led by people with gifts of evangelism, it's easy to say, oh, they don't care about quality. We're all pretty committed to quality. We believe that quantity uh, follows quality. That's our agreed-upon passion. And I guess this is just a word to say. Um, and I think you're modeling. It's great to pray for him. I've built a personal friendship. You've done things to try to extend respect. I think trying to get the disciples to tone down the rhetoric, which isn't yeah. your heart anyway, because at the end of the day, it's the body of Christ. And if they're committed to the scriptures and if they believe the gospel, if we're going to spend eternity with them, I think that how we treat them here matters a lot. That's good. I'm- All right. So I- interesting thoughts. I-, I think they're being diplomatic. And, uh, you know, and I think there's a place for that. And the fact that they're pastors, I, I think that, you know, in some senses, that's not a bad thing to do. But the reality is this, is that it's not just enough to say that you are committed to the scriptures. You, you The pastor's job is to proclaim and preach the scriptures. It And just because a pastor says that he has a gift of evangelism doesn't get him off the hook regarding the biblical duties of the pastoral office that are binding on all pastors in all congregations throughout the world. The reason why is because your pastor is not the little mini lord of your particular congregation. He is an under-shepherd of our great God and Savior and our only Lord, Jesus Christ. And God and His Word and our Lord has made it clear the job of a pastor is to preach the Word in season and out of season and to make disciples teaching people all the things that are there written in God's Word. All of it. The full counsel of the Word of God, not withholding any piece of it, and to proclaim Christ and Him crucified for our sins. This, these, I'm sorry, but uh, over and again, we've seen the fruit of what goes on in these so-called megachurches that are supposed to be big evangelism, seeker-driven churches, 
and what gets cut out? Sound biblical doctrine. Christ and him crucified for our sins, a clear proclamation of Christ, and biblical teaching that actually does engage people and teach them the full counsel of the Word of God so that there is quality to their discipleship. And the the uh, the instances, the the you know, the numbers of pastors in these seeker driven megachurches that are not doing that, I can't even I can't even begin to count them anymore. And we review their sermons here at Fighting for the Faith on a regular basis. I you'll notice I'm not exactly trying to be diplomatic. I'm trying to get in people's faces and point them back to the scripture and say, This is what God's word said is and it's binding on you, and I don't care if you have you say you have the gift of evangelism, you hold the pastoral office. And there are duties that go along with that pastoral office that you don't get to lay aside just because you are trying to reach the lost. Anyway. All right, we are up on our second break. When we come back, we got two good sermons that we're going to be reviewing uh, from two Lutheran uh, pastors uh, regarding Pentecost. Yeah, that's right, Pentecost. And uh, the one thing you're going to uh, probably be impressed by is the fact that um, n- n- none of these sermons um, sound uh, charismatic Pentecostal. Yeah, that, that's all I'll say for right now. Anyway. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Chris Roseborough here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzmann's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. 
And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Join our crew today, and thank you for your support. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. And uh, yesterday was uh, Pentecost. Those of you who attend uh, churches that have a lectionary and are more confessional liturgical, uh, you follow the church year, and 50 days after Easter is Pentecost. You know, the kickoff of the church, kickoff of the end of days. Important stuff. But I've got two sermons that we're going to be reviewing here. Let's uh, cue up the music here. ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service we've got two sermons we're going to be reviewing today both of them are short and both of them uh, regard well they're in regards to pentecost now i think it's important to uh, send out two good sermons so that you can hear what good pentecost sermons sound like Uh, there's uh, many misconceptions and misconstruings of the whole pentecost thing and I would like to offer up these two sermons as a counterweight, as a counterbalance, as a corrective, as um, as a sobering reminder that the big um, miracle that took place on Pentecost was not the speaking in other languages. Yes, there they were other languages that were being spoken. It was not ecstatic speech that was meaningless. And you're going, well, how do you know? How do you know? Because, you know, the church I go to or the pastor I used to, you know, the the, the church I used to attend, he would you know, basically say that, you know, this is just gibberish. <laughs> that just turn off your brain and let your tongue go kind of stuff. Well, no. If you have your Bible, flip on over to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Do, do, do. I'll tell you what, I'm going to kill the music there. Yeah, that's right. I just murdered the music. I killed it. <laughs> yeah. um, let me read to you a little bit from this uh, uh, the Pentecost text uh, before we get into the, our sermon reviews. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, uh, they were all together in one place. This is the uh, about 120 Christians. That uh, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them. And rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues. A Greek word there, glossolalia. And as as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now you're going, okay. Now how do you know this wasn't just ecstatic speech like we hear, you know, at uh, at the vineyard and the John Wimberites and stuff like that? <clears throat> Verse five. We continue. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. In other words, the gift here was that God was giving the disciples the ability 
to speak in languages that they did not know and to speak it intelligibly and to speak it with the right dialect and to speak it in such a way that the people who were gathered for the Feast of Pentecost from all over the world, they were there in Jerusalem. They were hearing the wonders of God being proclaimed in their own language. This is a direct, distinctively different thing than the thing we see going on in the charismatic churches and in the Pentecostal churches. So anyway, just just keep that in mind. So so let's talk about the sermons that we're going to be reviewing today. We got two of them. Have I mentioned that we have two of them? The first is from newly ordained, no longer vicar, no longer seminarian, pastor Matt Zickler, and the sermon that he preached at Advent Evangelical Lutheran Church in Zionsville, Indiana, and preaching on this text. And then the second will be from uh, Pastor William Swirla and his Pentecost sermon entitled, We Believe in the Holy Spirit. So those are the sermons we're going to be giving respectively. And you'll notice that this provides um, a completely different look at Pentecost than um, what many American evangelicals who've been influenced by the Pentecostal movement or the charismatic movement may have heard. So with that... Here is uh, our first sermon, Pastor Matt Zickler. Here we go. And peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The sermon text for today is from the second lesson, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 14, which are the account of Pentecost. Be a spirit-filled church. We're a spirit-filled church. Our church is filled with the Holy Spirit. Our worship isn't like those dead churches. It's lively and spirit-filled. How often have you heard people say things like this? In American Christianity, these kinds of statements are thrown all over the place. If your church doesn't have what they see as the Spirit, well, then it must be dead. And along with it, your faith just may be dead as well. I can think of one particularly disturbing instance of hearing something like this, which was in the documentary Jesus Camp. Some of you may have seen this, and you might remember there was a little girl who couldn't have been much more than nine or ten, and how she goes on saying that God isn't in all churches. She says, not all churches have God in them. Those are called dead churches, and God doesn't go to them. He only goes to churches where people are screaming and dancing and being loud. He doesn't go to churches where people just sit and worship Him quietly. She ends up saying that depending on how people invite God determines whether He'll be there or not. Now, of course, to be honest, she doesn't actually talk about her church, the one that she attends specifically as being spirit-filled. But obviously that is her point. If God isn't in a church, then His Spirit isn't in that church And if his spirit isn't in that church, then that church is not spirit-filled. So what do we make of of things like this? What does it look like for a church to be spirit-filled? Well, in the lesson today in Acts, we see the epitome of all epitomes of a spirit-filled church. We see the first spirit-filled church the one at Pentecost itself where Christ sent His Spirit and filled that first Christian church. 
So what do we see there? Do we see dancing? Do we see screaming and yelling and energetic worship? No. We see that at that Pentecostal church, Christ gave His promised Spirit to us fallen men to proclaim the wonders of God. Now, as we saw in the Gospel lesson today, the Spirit had been given to Christ in His baptism. The evangelist tells us how John the Baptist testified that he said, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on Him. I would not have known Him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. So, what does this matter? Isn't this then just the way for John to know that this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as he said? Isn't it so that he could say, This is the one who, who I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Well, of course, that's, that's a major part of it. If the Spirit had not descended on Jesus and remained on him, John could not have given that testimony. He could not have made it clear that he himself was not the Messiah, but that Jesus was. But the Spirit did not just descend on Jesus. He descended on Jesus and remained on him. And he did so, and he became Jesus' Spirit, so that Jesus now had the Spirit to give, which is why he is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit, as John says. So, when we think of the Spirit being Jesus' Spirit, we can think of this just like how you may have that 55 Corvette that that your dad is intending to give to you. But until he gives it to you, it's not yours. Now, once he does give it to you, no matter when that is, if you were so inclined, you could could give that that Corvette to whoever you wanted. Perhaps even to a newly ordained seminarian. But the point is, once he gives it to you, it's yours. Or, thinking about it from the other perspective, you perhaps have a diamond bracelet that you want to give your daughter. It's not hers to give and to do with what she would like with it until you give it to her. Now, coming back then to Jesus in the Spirit, the, Jesus doesn't just receive the Spirit and then give him away right away. The Spirit remains with Jesus until he gives him up on the cross. As John says, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, what we must keep in mind is that Jesus doesn't just give up his spirit for his spirit to float around as some kind of ethereal, into some kind of ethereal existence, doing whatever he likes, be be this or be it that. No, that's not what Jesus wants, and that's not what the spirit himself wants. He wants to be given to the church. And so that's what Jesus does on Pentecost. He gives the Spirit to the church. And of course, as the church, we are in dire need of the Spirit. Since the fall, we lost the Spirit. In the beginning, God breathed His breath, His wind, into Adam and gave Him life. He breathed it into Adam, and our forefather rejected that Spirit and gave it up. He trusted the word of the devil over the word of God. He worried that perhaps God had something hiding up his sleeve, something he was withholding. Adam thought that perhaps there was something that that God had that could be better than what he had given him in the tree of life. Adam thought that he had a better word in himself than the word that was given to him. 
And of course, Adam isn't the only one, is he? We all participate in that lie. We all are the ones who do not listen or pay attention to God, but follow our own stubborn inclinations, the evil of our own hearts, as we heard in the Old Testament lesson. We all naturally reject the spirit that our first father rejected, don't we? Look at your own life. You know that of yourself you don't have the spirit. After all, don't you still like to think that you know better than God? Don't you still have those times where you think that your word is greater than God's word? After all, isn't it better that we harbor just a little bit of that hatred toward our neighbor rather than love him unconditionally? Isn't it better that you complain about your co-worker's mistakes on his reports and call him stupid rather than show him that same grace that you would like to receive when you slip up in something? Or isn't it better that you tell your friend about what you heard about Sally's mom who you volunteer with at school rather than save her that embarrassment that you would like to be spared when you've done something less than noteworthy? But of course, we don't see our participation in that lie from the beginning just in these ways. It's here in the churches as well. It's in the places where the Spirit Himself has promised to be. How often do we want worship to be more fitting to us and to our desires for our entertainment? We don't want worship that's boring and that teaches us something. We want worship that's so simple that we can constantly be changing it so that we won't get bored. Of course, the fact is, we're the ones that are boring. We're boring, self-absorbed sinners. And with that, all the more we... We want the Spirit Himself to be something different than He is. Rather than coming to us where He has promised to come through the Word and preaching and teaching in the Scriptures and the Word as it's attached to baptism and the bread and the wine and the Lord's Supper, we want the Spirit to be free to come to us in our emotional ecstasy or to hear His voice in our our own prayers rather than in His Word first and foremost. We want to look to ourselves and find Him within us. And we want to turn away from God's promises and back to ourselves. But this spirit is not a floating spirit. He is Christ's spirit working through creation, working in, with, and under created means, just where God has promised and where we see Him when He comes upon Christ Himself, descending upon a created man and remaining on Him. In Christ, in that joining of God to humanity, we see that now our bodies which were made incapable of receiving that Spirit after the fall are now made capable of receiving the Spirit. Because God has joined Himself to the flesh of sinful man, we know that that flesh has been made more. It has been sanctified by Christ and by His death. In His death, Christ has purged the flesh of its sin and the outpouring of God's wrath upon it. And then He rose again to give new life to our bodies. And we too will receive this new life which draws us out of our self-absorption, out of our, our participation in that lie that has been since the beginning. Yes, by the Spirit, you too will rise again in a body like Christ because in your baptism, as St. Paul promises, you were buried with Him through baptism into death. So that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, you too may live a new life. And this life is the life of the Spirit. Christ gives you His Spirit, and He gives you new life. And so what does this life look like? It's, well, it's a life of love and service to the neighbor. A life that 
that's a confession of Christ and who He is. And so to connect our, our text this week to the one last week, we see this because Christ, uh, we see what Christ means. He, he gave His word to His disciples that they would receive, the, receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them. He says to them that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so in this week's text, we see that he does send that spirit. We see that his disciples become witnesses, just as he said. They become witnesses as a part of this life of Christ. And we see that Christ's word worked what it promised. We see that on the day of Pentecost, all the disciples came together in one place and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So in Pentecost, the Spirit came in in a sign showing the presence of God that is in the sign of fire, like the consuming fire, the fire that was in the burning bush and in that, pre- that presence, the disciples were given power. And specifically, they were enabled to speak in other languages for all of those who were in Jerusalem celebrating the Jewish Pentecost feast so that all of them could understand. The Spirit gave them words of other languages. Now, of course, the Spirit didn't just do this so that the disciples could speak to these men and be their friends and do nice things for them and buddy up to them. But the Spirit gave them this understanding so that these men could understand the gospel once they heard it. Our text says that as the Spirit gave them words, a crowd gathered together, which the crowd had done so often around Jesus himself. And the Spirit's words made this crowd say, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. And so here we see the role of the Spirit. He gives us faith, and then he gives to us to declare the life-giving wonders of God. And we do this as service to our neighbor. This is why Peter then got up after he'd received the Spirit, and after the people began mocking, and he said to them, Fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. And then he followed and gave witness to the life of Christ, just as Jesus said he would. He gave witness to the wonders of God. The wonder that God would become man, would be crucified and died and buried on behalf of those who put him to death, but that he would rise again for our justification. God did all of this in the man Jesus, and the Spirit gave them the words to proclaim. He gave the words for Peter to proclaim, and he gave, gives us now those words to proclaim as well, because that is his role. The Spirit was given to Jesus in his baptism. Then Jesus gave the Spirit to Peter and all the disciples. And then Peter and all the disciples give that Spirit again. This is why Peter says at the conclusion of his sermon, when the crowd asks, what should we do? He replies, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter's been given that gift and he now gives it. And he gives a promise as well. He says, this promise is for you and all your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So we see that Peter gave the Spirit through preaching and baptizing, just as we have been given that Spirit to give him again. And so with all of this in mind, we see truly where the Spirit is present 
And we see how he is present. We see that his presence does not depend on some kind of emotional or energetic worship. It does not depend on some kind of lively entertainment. Nor does it depend on the manifestation of some kind of ecstatic speaking. No. All of these are worthless apart from the true presence of the Spirit because the Spirit depends on the Word of Christ. The Spirit comes when that Word is spoken. He comes when the forgiveness of Christ is proclaimed and He brings that very forgiveness in, with, and under that Word. Being given again then when those in whose hearts He dwells proclaim that Word. And so, that means that we can rightly and we can firmly say that we are a church filled with the Spirit. Amen. Amen. Now may the, great, the peace of God which transcends all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen again. All right, so that was uh, Pastor Matt Zickler, uh, the newly ordained Pastor Matt Zickler, and his Pentecost sermon. Hmm, it doesn't have us jumping over the aisles and barking like dogs and, and uh, ex- uh, engaging in ecstatic, nonsensical speech. Hmm, interesting sober take regarding Pentecost. Well, here uh, now is sermon number two. It is uh, Pastor William Swirla's sermon entitled, We Believe in the Holy Spirit. Here we go. In the name of Jesus. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. Today is the Holy Spirit's day, Pentecost day, the red day, a day full of grace, a day full of favor. It is the day the crucified, risen, and reigning Lord Jesus Christ breathed out on his church, which at that time was 120 believers gathered together in a single room. Amazing, isn't it? The entire holy Catholic and apostolic church on earth, 120 believers. But not for long. It's Pentecost. Pentecost means 50 in Greek. It's just the number, 50 days. In the Old Testament, it was the harvest festival of the winter wheat, 50 days after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And in the tradition of the rabbis, it celebrated the giving of the Torah uh, to Moses on Mount Sinai 50 days after the Exodus. And so the Lord employs the symbolism to its maximum effect. It was now 50 days after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, seven weeks Fifty days after Jesus did his exodus from death to life comes the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the new Torah, if you will, the gospel of Jesus. And it's preached to all the world in all of its representative languages. Fifty days after Jesus' resurrection from the grave, the first fruits of the resurrection harvest is gathered. Three thousand people heard the gospel of Jesus, believed in his name, and were baptized. Pentecost also indicates the beginning of the last days, leading up to the last day. Everything has been done for your salvation, for the salvation of the world. Christ has died. 
Christ has risen, Christ has ascended to the throne of glory at his Father's right hand. It is finished. There is nothing left to do except to broadcast the victory, to proclaim it, to preach it, to make it known far and wide. And that kind of activity takes breath. The church has to have breath if she is to proclaim the victory, the good news of Jesus' reign, the good news of his victory over death by his death and resurrection. Before you can shout, and especially before you can sing, you need to inhale. You need to take in a good deep breath. That's what Pentecost is. Pentecost is God's exhaling and the church's inhaling. The Spirit is the church's breath, literally the breath of Christ, the rushing wind, the tongues of fire, that's Jesus breathing out his spirit upon his church, giving life to the church, giving breath to the church, giving breath to speak and to proclaim in his name. The breath of God blew through the church like a mighty wind that day. Divided tongues of fire rested on each of the 120 disciples that were gathered there. Wind and fire, those were Sinai signs. That's what went on with Moses on Mount Sinai. Jesus himself promised that he would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And here it is, Holy Spirit, fire and wind and breath. And the disciples were all filled with the Spirit and they began to speak in various languages and dialects. And the people who were gathered in Jerusalem for Pentecost from all over the Mediterranean world heard the good news of Jesus in their own ears, in their very own languages and dialects. Pentecost was a miracle both of speaking and hearing. The Holy Spirit working in the mouths of the disciples, the Holy Spirit working in the ears of the hearers to convey the gifts of Christ. I've come to realize that's why two people can hear the same sermon and have completely different reactions to it. I've learned that over 17 years of preaching. No two people hear the same sermon the same way. I used to think it was me. Then I used to think it was you. Now I think it's the Holy Spirit. Sometimes I plan to say one thing and I end up saying something else too. See, that too is the Holy Spirit. I believe on the basis of Pentecost that this is precisely how the Spirit of God works. He works through means. In this case, words, nouns and verbs and adverbs and adjectives and subjects and predicates. Human language. You know, the sounds that we produce with tongue and teeth and breath and air molecules bouncing around It's one of the most amazing gifts of the Spirit that the Word of God, that living Word that kills and makes alive, that Word that's sharper than any two-edged sword, can be conveyed in ordinary human language. It's just like baptism, rebirth, renewal by the Holy Spirit worked through something so plain and simple as water. Or it's like the Lord's Supper, the sacrificial body and blood of Christ made available to us in ordinary means of bread and wine. God works through ordinary things, creaturely things, earthy things. That's how the Spirit works. That's what makes things spiritual. Not that they're not material, but that the Spirit takes up material and uses them for his purpose. The languages spoken here were actually coherent human languages too. Remember that. 
The true Pentecostal church preaches coherently. The true Pentecostal church preaches things you can understand. Not gibberish, not babbling. Languages that could be understood. Even dialects and accents, that much. People heard the gospel in their own native tongues. And the purpose of that was that was God's way of saying, this is for you, for you personally. This death, this life of Jesus, this baptism, this forgiveness, this salvation, this is for you. God wants you to hear this in your own language. Take it personally and trust it. Own it for yourselves because the words for you require all hearts to believe. That's what the languages business was about. For you. Our Old Testament reading spoke of a different kind of language event, the Tower at Babel, where God intervened in the ambitious plans of men to build a city and a tower to the heavens by confusing their languages. I love that. It's wonderfully subversive and simple. If you want people to scatter and not have anything to do with each other, you just change their languages around a little bit so they can't understand each other, and they'll be sure to hate each other and scatter all over the place. It was a protective act of judgment on God's part, lest a united humanity do something even worse. And look at all the mischief we do when we get together. See, it reveals God's mistrust for us and our, of, of our unity as sinners. You always hear talk about everyone all being all together as one and how great it would be if we all got together and could just be one people all over the face of the earth and the Lord doesn't appear to think that this is a very good idea. Instead, he looks down on the plans of men and he knows the mischief that sinners will make if they just all get together. The place where God confused the languages of men was called Babel. It sounds like what it is, babbling. It forms the root for Babylon. Babylon, the city that man builds. The city that is destined for destruction on the last day. See, we are reminded by this narrative that the ambitions of man apart from God will result in nothing good. And only in chaos and confusion. All of our attempts to be united, to be one people, will amount to nothing more than tower building without the Lord. And it also reminds us who runs the verbs here, if not the nouns. We don't. God does. We don't reach up to him. We don't reach up to him with our towers or with our religions. He comes down to us. God comes down to us to be one with us and one of us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now at Pentecost, the confusion of Babel was not really undone. The diversity of languages remains. Instead, God uses it. He takes the diversity of languages as a sign of his spirit And he brings people together not by putting them into a common language, but by giving them a common Savior. There is one Lord. There is one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. There is one Spirit, one bread, one cup, one body. Our union in Christ is is the true unity of the church and the only way in which we can be united 
in a way where we won't destroy one another. Now, the world remains skeptical. You know what they said at the time of Pentecost. They heard all this preaching in various languages, and some people thought that the disciples were drinking at 9 in the morning. Though I personally have never met anybody whose language skills improve with drinking, much less expand to other languages and dialects. This doesn't happen. You see, as the last days play out, skepticism is bound to increase as will false teachings and false teachers, deceptive spirits, all sorts of spiritualities, any distraction from Jesus and his cross. In fact, I would hold that out as a great litmus test. If it doesn't have anything to do with Jesus and his dying and rising for your salvation, then it probably isn't the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is in the Jesus delivery business. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Timothy Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Our day is one of many spirits and many beliefs. It's a religious babel out there. And sometimes that religious babbling even comes into the church and confuses her language a bit, too. We ourselves are tempted. We have this itch for new things. We're fascinated by spiritual things, whether they're from the Holy Spirit or some other spirit. Some people expect the church always to be like Pentecost, like the opening day. Wind, tongues of fire, speaking in languages, thousands baptized at one time. And that may indeed happen once in a while, here and there, as needed. But that's not the ordinary way of the church. That's the church's opening day. The ordinary way of Pentecost is the preaching of Jesus, baptism, body and blood. Immediately after this episode in the book of Acts, it says of those who were gathered at Pentecost, they continued in the doctrine of the apostles, in the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and in the prayers. In other words, they got together and worshipped, much the same way we do here, coincidentally at nine in the morning, preaching, teaching, fellowship in the breaking of the bread, and the cup and prayer. I started to think this morning, thinking about Pentecost, could you imagine what would happen if wind and fire and speaking in tongues happened every Sunday? (laughs) That would be kind of cool for a while, I think. Might even draw a crowd. But I know what would happen within a month or two. We'd start complaining about the wind. (laughs) It's blowing all the paper around all over the place, messing up our hair. You know, or we'd start to worry that those tongues of fire might kind of get loose and singe something or hurt the little kids or I don't know. We'd form a committee probably, try to deal with this wind and fire business. And all these languages would start to get on our nerves after a while and we'd start to say, please, couldn't we just all talk in one language because that's a lot easier on the ears than all these languages and dialects. Jesus knows this. He knows what's best for his bride, the church, and he's promised always to be with us. The Holy Spirit is how Jesus can both go away and come to be with us at the same time. 
In one sense, Jesus did go away when he ascended. He withdrew his visible and touchable presence. We can't see him, we can't touch him, we can't hear him directly, nor would we want to. Not in his glory, it's not safe for us. But in, a, in another and greater sense, he does come to us. He comes to us by the spirit that he sends. In the spirited word that has Jesus' own imprimatur on it, that the disciples who wrote it did so guided by the spirit who called all things to their memory and recalled to them everything that Jesus had told them. We can trust their word. It has Jesus' spirit upon it. And that same spirit is at work among us here today, subtly and humbly and hiddenly, delivering the peace of Jesus, delivering the gifts of Jesus. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Unearthly peace. That's the big Pentecost gift. Not wind, not fire, not languages. Unearthly peace. The peace of sins forgiven. The peace of being able to stand before God as a sinner justified, declared righteous. The peace of having death conquered for you so you need not fear your death. You know where this leads to the peace of resurrection to eternal life. That's Pentecost peace and Pentecost joy brought to you by the Spirit of Christ. In the name of Jesus. Amen. So no barking, no uh, unintelligible ecstatic speech, no uh, jumping over the pews or anything like that, but preaching Christ and him crucified for our sins, calling sinners to repentance and the forgiveness of their sins, and God the Holy Spirit through the preaching of his word and the proclamation of the gospel, bringing people to repentance and contrition and sorrow for their sins, saying, what shall we do? And the Apostle Peter, after his fantastic Holy Spirit-inspired sermon, tells people to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. It sounds like the real Pentecost, rather than the crazy reinterpretation of Pentecost uh, by Pentecostals. It seems more consistent with the text, and it seems to exalt Christ rather than have him get lost in the, uh, in the fanatical gifts, so to speak. Interesting take. Quite a different view. I wonder which one is correct. What do you think? Need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, 
Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>